Hey everybody, we are Martin, Robert, and Francis, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head, rent-free. Hi, I'm Martin. I'm Francis. And I'm Robert. So, welcome back to Snakes and Otters, episode two. Uh, again, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. So guys, um, I, uh, as always, I like to bring in the stuff that I've been reading. I'm reading The Sleepwalkers by Christopher Clark. This is a book about the European powers stumbling into World War One. Oh, goody. So, the question is, who's to blame? Um, you know, what comes down to us, the standard history is, of course, the Germans had to uh, what, do you, what would you call it? They had to own up to it uh, in the Treaty of Versailles. That's right. And, right. They, and, they had to take full blame, as was written out, which was one of the points of contestment. Well, well it was asinine, really. It I was, mean, but the victors write the treaties, it seems. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we have that. We have Serbian perfidy. We have the alliance system explains some of it. Um, and then, of course, there's a big part of it that... Um, kind of comes down to us of the Russian commitment to their Slavic and Orthodox brethren. But is that really so? And this is a really good material that Clark brings up here in challenging all of this. Good. I think it needs to be reevaluated. At this, the century mark later for the end of the war, which is literally days away from us. Yeah, that's yeah. right. November eleventh. You know, it's it's just just you know within thirty days. Eleventh hour of the eleventh day of the eleventh month. That's correct. Uh, a reevaluation of this because I think we can start with the premise of however it started, wherever it ended was totally different. Yeah, one thing that uh, that makes World War One or the Great War so problematic in understanding is not just the multiple players because you think about it. Europe had not seen a war that involved this many countries all at war at the same time for centuries. Because even Napoleon didn't take on everybody at the same time. Close, but not quite. Yeah, but I mean, you know, he, he marched across Europe, but it's not like they all gathered together. Because, you know, most of the war was that we think of is in the East. But there was the Western Front, or the Eastern Front, I mean, with the Russians. Uh, same as with World mm -hmm. War Two. But, you know, we're focused always on the, East, uh, the Western Front with the... Uh, uh, Germany and France and Great Britain and everything in France. But anyways, <clears throat> sorry, I got off the point there. My point is that this war, in many ways, it's two things. Uh, it's the John the Baptist of wars. Uh, in the sense that John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. Yes. He's also the first New Testament prophet. At the same time. At the same time. This is the last... Um, 19th century slash imperialist kind of war. Right. But it's also the first modern war. Because it starts out, for a lot of those same kind of reasons that things went on leading up to the 20th century. It was about, um, uh, in many cases, individual rulers and their alliances, right. and thinking in terms of power grabs for land and what have you. A very imperialistic <laughs> mindset. Yeah, a very imperialistic well, mindset. And it's the first appearance of nationalism. Yes, which so, is so antithetical to imperialism. It becomes an ideological conflict, unlike any in the past. So, you're right. the The last, yeah. even the Napoleon last was just old yet another um, uh, absolute ruler. Yeah, yeah he's, he's just, just another absolute the first, ruler. The first new style 
How is modern. it ideological? It's racial, too. But it's also a conflict of autocracy and nationalism and um, theology and... I understand the concept of nationalism because that's what comes out of it. And autocracy is what goes into it. And it's a big change over every... All the empires of Europe, the great powers, if we will, are destroyed. The only thing that comes out on the other side are France and Britain unchanged. But even their mindset and understanding of themselves as countries, as powers, is totally changed as well. In fact, the American experience is totally different after the fact. We are, yes. now, we are now a nation of our own, on our own standing. We are no longer, and that's what everybody else comes away with. Unfortunately, right, finish that thought. We are no longer what? We are no longer a pawn. For, for the American experiences, we are no longer a pawn of Europe. We are on the same level playing field with them and as great as they are. you think this only happens at World War One? Absolutely. Really? Oh, Teddy Roosevelt tried. Believe me, he tried. The Great White Fleet and all the the rest of it. The Spanish-American War does establish us as... As a world power. Don't mess with us. We're going to do what we please. And we took down one of the ancient powers. True, but it was untested, truly, until we won World War I. It was implied. It was a big stick. There were some maybe did not challenge it. Maybe it was a validation of... That That is correct. I wouldn't say it... Uh, at best, it's a validation of what happened before, That's not correct. the beginning. I don't think you can yeah, say that. I think you need to grab hold of uh, Robert Mary's um, President McKinley book. That was because a, we talked about Europe, it before. I, what my point is, Europe considered us upstarts and yes, ridiculous. See, what I what I'm caught on, on is your, the, your pawn terminology. I don't think Americans ever thought of themselves as that way. Oh no, at all. No, it, but that's what you just said. I believe Europe thought of us as okay, that. Okay, well, that's a different thing. Europe, that's a different Europe, thing. We but even then, I don't think they thought of us no, as pawns. No, they, they, they thought of us as competitors, but very young only if Only if you mean pawns as in the little guy on the playing field. That's exactly what I mean. Well, see, that's most people, when you hear pawns, you're going to think, the guy that I tell what to do. No, no, no. I'm, no. You know, I'm, this, yeah, I'm these are the him. These are the jokes and the upstarts. That, yeah, that, that we've been doing this over here in Europe for so long, and you guys have been here for that for this amount of time. Don't mess with us. Let, well, we're the major leagues. You guys are just the farm team. That's that was the that is the attitude. And after World War that One, I that like is completely bit, changed. That analogy I like a little bit. And more. and I hate to do this, but I'll give Wilson some credit for that because his ambition to be seen as a major world power was one of the few things that he did that did bear some fruit. I think he was also seen well, as a joke. I think. Uh, and well, nobody took his his post war plan seriously. That is correct, and he was he was very much. If you if you read a little bit about Wilson's triumphal tour after the war, in Europe he was considered France in particular. He was an absolute joke. They adored him because he won the war for them, but all of his plans about coming over here and making all these great peacemaker. That's where the whole business we quickly revert. They quickly reverted back into their old ways, saying, "Who are these? Who are these idiots? You know, yeah. let us handle this. You know, go, go, go back into the other room and hurt some squirrels. Why don't you? That's what we're talking yeah. about. Well, let me let me wind us back just a little bit back to blame though, and I, I want to yeah, bring sorry. this <laughs> what Clark is to, brings through in this Sleepwalker book as the name 
kind of implies the European powers stumbled into it. Yes. Absolutely. That, yeah. Again, the what, we as, what we as history no kind of understand it. is the blame is the alliance systems That's right. or whatever. He's saying, look, there's enough blame to go around. There is. In particular, what I found fascinating is the Russian role in starting the war. Via the alliance systems? No. What are the Russians always about? Warm water. Right, yeah, warm water ports. So their fixation on the Dardanelles leads them... And you have to also remember, too, we tend to think of the autocrats in both Germany and Russia as being important. Really, their tales are really tales of incompetence. Uh, Generally speaking. Nicholas was completely out of his depth. That's correct. And... Wilhelm wasn't much better. No. He, he was seen he, as like a complete psychopath, basically. Absolutely. And, but he had a lot of power. And the cult but of the warrior But he did not use his power. It. That's correct. He did not use it. He pushed it off to the counselors. Well, however, the warrior culture of Germany that had been fostered for hundreds of years took on a life of its own. The Junkers and all the rest of them were very much what ran Germany. Yeah. Well, well the, 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 the whole Prussian thing, I mean, you got to remember, the, the Prussians are... Masters of War. Yeah, that's their, that's their yeah. thing. So that's yeah. their claim to fame. So yeah, you're correct. And that's what Kaiser Bill was. He was a Prussian. Well, and he let's let's phrase it this way: from if there was a Twitter that Wilhelm had access to, he would have been that guy that tweeted one thing one day and something else the next that was completely contradictory. Right. Like a certain are prominent. You, are you saying that we might have a modern day Kaiser somewhere? Uh, we have someone with the same temperament, I believe. Well, yeah, you yeah, could, yeah. you could. So, what I found fascinating about this is the Russian fixation on the Straits, the Dardanelles, and warm water, and their feeling that you know the Ottoman Empire is known as the sick man of Europe for a reason. Correct, but it has they all are, this access. They're foreseeing. The Russians are foreseeing that there's going to be a dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire, and they went in on the front end of that. What they see as the kickoff, then, of this dismemberment is a generalized European war. And where's the best place to start a war? Of course, the Balkans, because that's also going to be right there, um... Within their sphere of influence, within that right, within that sphere, right there on the on the uh, the Dardanelles and everything too. Well, what's the best way to start a war in the Balkans? Piss off the Austrians. So their focus is on well, how do we antagonize the Austrians? The Austrians and the Russians almost came to a war in 1909, full mobilization, and that that incident. Clark describes it, you know, this becomes the thing that changes the strategic outlook now of all the alliance partners because the Austrians cannot afford to, like, mobilize, demobilize, blah, 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 back and forth. It costs too much money. Yes. And they are many, in many ways can, also a sick man of Europe. Yes. It continually tests the loyalty of all of these nationalities because... They all got to leave the harvest, leave their jobs, whatever. 
And if they are getting frustrated with all of this melting pot of Austria-Hungary. So, of course, France only cares about Germany. They don't care about Austria. But the only way for France to survive, in their minds, Germany's onslaught is if Russia realigns against Germany and not Austria. And the only way that's going to happen is if they accede to Russian feelings about, well, the Balkans are the, the tinder box. Yes, which ultimately turned out to be. Yeah. And so French uh, financial assistance to the Russians becomes basically conditional on the Russians redoing their whole railroad network so that they can concentrate against the Germans. And so then you got the Brits who, you know, we tend to think of them having this competition with the Germans, but the Brits really thought, well, we've already beat the Germans, we don't care. Their concern was playing nice to the Russians. The Russians are the real threat because they're the ones that have access to Persia, which means they have access to oil, which means they could disrupt Britain, changing from coal-fired to an oil-fired navy, and threaten India. So the Brits decided it's much better to try to appease and go along with the Russians than it is to try to have a detente with the Germans. Germans have nothing to offer either of these people. And that is a big piece of it, too, because now the Germans are feeling more and more and more isolated because nobody wants to play nice with them. And they themselves... nobody can get any... There's no point to it. Well, that's right. There's nothing that the Germans can provide them other than a military esprit de corps, and that's seen as competitive anyway. Well, and there's, you know, the Germans and the Russians tried to have detente, some, and, and get along, but there's still no point. Again, there was a, a period of time the Brits and the Germans had detente, but once the Brits kind of decided, well, we've won the naval race... It's more important to prop up France and be France's buddy and appease Russia, which helps us be France's buddy. Right. And so it, the more of this stuff that happens... Give me a reason why France and Russia, why that alliance worked. What did they give each other? Well, France felt like they could not survive an onslaught of the Germans. That is correct. France's, so, France's courting of Russia makes good sense. They, Why did they, Russia care? For the money. Same, well, for the same money. reason. Well, yes, but I mean, even though Russia is huge right. and have lots of resources, they're, they're still backwards That's compared right. to the rest of Europe. Correct. They knew this. I think this has been a, a sore point as but far as... Napoleon. Well, yes, but... But after the... the uh, Russo-Japanese War, it really came home to them. Well, yes. Because yes. they got their clock cleaned. Yeah, they, they got their clock cleaned clean. by Japan. By Japan. Tiny little country. That's yeah, correct. at least in the, in, the, in the naval sense. They right. held their own on land. And they've also got But they got felt this... like they had recovered from that. There's a big part of this, too, is that... Right, but you still have to prove... Yeah. That, but, so, because Germany... Because you got to remember, there's no Poland at this time. Germany and Russia are going to be... Right, uh, well, Germany, Austria, and Russia are all at right, the cornerstone. Yeah. Right, but but my point is, though, there's, there's no buffer between right. Germany and so, Russia. So, to steal a line from Star Trek VI, uh, the Russians felt they had an aggressive species with a toehold on their territory. Now, you could say that, because yeah. since it's, Poland was pretty much divided between 
uh, here's, the two of them. But here's the and thing. everybody considered Poland theirs. Yeah. Right. What drives Russian strategic thinking is the Straits. Is yeah. is their feeling that eventually there's going to be a dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire. And Russia, they must and, have some influence in the Balkans in order to be at the table when that's and carved they up. see France and Britain holding key cards in that dismemberment. Well, they know that they'll be at the table, too. That's correct. Yeah. Well, because they're the great France, powers. That's yeah, correct. France's strategic concern is they don't feel they can hold the Germans off alone. And they Therefore, are, they must prop up Russia and, and turn... Russian attention away from Austria to Germany. Um, while we're on this, we're talking about the Balkans and how that's important for this. You made a comment earlier that uh, I want you to either explain away or explain. Yeah. Because you made it sound like the Russians are sitting there thinking, we need to start a war. Where are we going to do it? Let's do it in the Balkans. So you're saying the Russians put up the, the Serbian nationalists to assassinate the Archduke? And his... Not so much, but they, they took advantage of the tension that was already there. Yeah, I mean, they, look, everybody thought the Serbians were giant dicks. No. The Russians took advantage of that. Yes. They made a choice because they had courted Bulgaria at first, but they ended up with the Serbians because they did feel like they had a little bit more... Controllability? Control, you know, a little bit more where they could kind of... Influence. And they had they had some relationship and they had some pro-Serbs. Well, they are, well, because in, they're ethnically very similar. They're Slavic, mostly. Serbs are well. They saw but they also felt like again connected. the they're closer to where the decision's going to be made. They're closer to the Straits than the Bulgarians. Um, okay. And again, a lot of this begins to tie financially because the French are also propping up the Serbians. So the French are propping up the Russians with loans. They're propping up the Serbians with loans. There's no more money left for Bulgaria, so Bulgaria turns to the Germans for loans. So that, I think that, again, that's a lot of Clark's point here is there's more to it than the alliance systems. There is a, there's a strategic vision that each one of these countries has. There's a strategic concern that they have, and especially the Russians came to view a general war as desirable of their aims. So you would suggest, uh, as I understand your explanation of what Clark is saying here, that we, generally speaking, believe the entire process that began the war as passive, that simply you you lit the match, the imagery has been used all over the place, and once that match was lit, that you could not stop the powder keg from exploding. You're saying is the powder keg was deliberately engineered yes. for this to eventually happen. The more things that happened, because they did, again, they came to full mobilization once in 1909 and right. did back away. Right. But the more of these things that happened, and the more, again, the, the Russian counselors marginalized Nicholas, and the more right. the German counselors marginalized Wilhelm, um, Clark is saying that their their strategic options began to narrow, especially the Austrians. Well, yeah, because they are they are a dying empire, and they know it. So they don't know it. They don't know it. Some that's, do. Well, that's part of. Uh, in some ways, the the Austrian Empire is one of the most advanced of the group. 
Um, really? It's the remnant of the Holy Roman Empire. It is, yes. I mean, there, yeah. it's a flourishing culture. I mean, Vienna yeah, was still considered to be... You know, the, the, the and the Habsburgs, I mean... Cultural... They Vienna. are Europe. I understand that. The but, history of Europe but, is the history of the Habsburgs. But the Austrian-Hungarian Empire is, a, is an extremely diverse to its own detriment group of peoples that yeah. are held together uh, just barely over enormous uh, racial hatred of each other. That's because they lost the German aspect of their empire. They didn't have one dominating group. That, ultimately, that's, that is yeah. true. Well, and the Germans had to share yeah. power with the Hungarians, who did not want their power diminished by sharing it with the anyone Austrian. else. Yeah, so right. I yeah. want to go back to... So the whole premise here is basically what caused the war, is what we're talking about here. Yeah. So... I'm not entirely sure that. I'm not entirely sure I agree with, and maybe it's just a difference in how things were taught and, and the various studies we've done since then. I and fully admit yeah. you guys have studied the war itself far more than I am. I'm way behind on that. But from what I remember, I don't think that what I was taught about the what the causes. Uh-huh. And granted, it's almost always the immediate causes, but the right. causes of World War One yeah. are incompatible with what he's saying because all of that uh, maneuvering. Uh, that's not incompatible with the alliance system. Right. The alliance system is how that stuff is expressed. Is, yeah, it's expressed. That's the mechanics. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I don't know that 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 he's necessarily saying anything new. At least according to my understanding of the yeah. war and how it started. He's simply saying that the alliance system was far more deliberate than accidental. And because and See, I don't yeah. know, that I've ever thought of it as well. Accidental. And I think you're right, but I think a hundred years later. We've become so obsessed with how it actually started. We seem to kind of push off the structure that led to the alliance. It's kind of like it's set in stone by the time we start talking about yeah, it. Exactly. And, and we, think it's, it. we think it's always been this way. Yeah. And it's just kind of one of those things. And well, that's yeah. not true. It is very deliberate. And well, it is also deliberate to produce what it did produce. Because it goes back to that first question you ask, who's to blame? We tend, you know... We tend to think that, oh, well, it was just inevitable because of this alliance system. We need to go back further, it sounds to me like, and start blaming the architects of the alliance well, system. Well, yeah, you have to because you have to, because the alliances are meaningless without knowing why they were put in place. Yeah. And, and I think because that's part of what he's trying to get to. Yeah, that's right. You, you can't understand the beginnings of World War One by only thinking of those three months in 1914. Right. Which, which all history books do. Yeah, well, that's because. By the very nature, history books that we use in school are, are far too condensed. Right. Um, a good example, you're talking about how this goes farther back is this. One thing I remember very clearly, and if you think about your history, this is very true. Now, while France and Germany have been historical enemies to our modern times, uh-huh. you go back prior, you know, far enough back, uh, you know, they were very much aligned in certain ways. That's correct. Now, that's going way back. That's right. Well, yeah, you talk about the wars of religion. A yeah, that, you know that's a that's a good example. Well, that it, was well, even the wars of religion didn't work necessarily because the Germany the, the Germany wasn't Germany. No, correct. But ethnically and geographically, those people, to use Robert E. Lee's terminology, those people were very much in line with the interests. Certain parts of them with France, others with yes, because ultimately Richelieu supported parts of the Protestants. Sometimes he supported the Catholics. It that's depended right. on whatever was good for France. That's right, because France was the continental power at the time. But uh, we're getting segued off of what, the point I was going to make. Um, so we start thinking about all these alliances, how all of this starts shaking out. Because when you think about the alliances that World War II begat, 
for the most part, it's the same alliances that we saw in World War or World War One that we saw in World War Two. Uh, Italy's the, the the one that switched sides basically. Um, but the whole idea of France and England being on the same side was unthinkable. That's correct, absolutely. But England was seeing itself kind of left out of mm-hmm. these alliances that yes. were being built. Well, and it, so they were like, "Crap! What what are we going to do? We're on our own here." That's right. And, and again, they, they were where they saw the competition. Yes, it's not Germany Everything anymore. We got changed. Germany beat. We don't care. That's right. The Russians are who we've got to beat. That's right. Because everything, but goes, they end up on the same side as Russia, though. That the Brits in the war. Yeah, the Brits purposely appealed and tried to appease the Russians because they saw the Russians as a greater threat the, what, to their strategic interests. If you really want to get the roots of this right, you have to go back to Napoleon because ultimately, and I and I'll go back to my one of my original premises. Everything the modern world was birthed at Waterloo. Now it was before that, and all the with Napoleon well, the that did all that exactly. But ultimately, that's all those things because Russia is go back seen, to the Peace of Westphalia in sixteen forty eight. If right. you want, uh-huh. I mean. Yes. Russia is seen after after eighteen twelve. Russia is seen as the enormous continental boogeyman who defeated the undefeatable. Right. When really and France, it was, it, granted, it was it happened in Russia, but I wouldn't necessarily give Russia all the credit. Nevertheless, <laughs> but yes, it happened in Russia. Snow, correct. Snow it helped. was snow helped a lot. Nevertheless, that's the image that comes away from it. Yes. And after Waterloo, in particularly, in particular, France is descending, Germany is ascending. They, the hatred that Germany, Prussia in particular, Blucher's a great example, hatred of everything French, because France and its culture has been imposed on all of Europe here for a better part of a decade. That is never forgotten, and it only is acerbated by Napoleon III being a dumbass and starting the Franco-Prussian War, and in the light of Bismarck being the genius that he was, cleaning Mm -hmm. their clocks. Now, all of a sudden, Germany has realized we are no longer this backwater polyglot of loosely lied folks. We are blue and iron. We, we kicked Napoleon's ass, his descendants. Nothing can stand in our way. This is the, the German mindset. There's a really big gap, in. though, between Napoleon and the Franco-Prussian War. Well, that's correct. But that, that, that's, that's the coalescing, among many other things, the coalescing of Germany as to a unique people. Napoleon started that. They began to see themselves as Germans. Without that galvanization, Bismarck would have had a much harder time in creating the not modern German state. So, you, since you're not finished yet, it, is, does it look like he's leading to a particular here's who started it or what? Or I, have I think, you gotten that far yet? I think what he's hitting on is there's a slice of the pie for everybody. Again, you got the French emboldening the Russians. You got the Brits emboldening the Russians and kind of drifting away from the idea of having detente with the Germans because, hey, we got the Germans beating this Navy race. We don't care anymore. Um, Of course, again, the Serbians, total lunatics. Uh, So there is a huge chunk of the blame for the Serbians. We by no way mean to impugn any modern-day Serbians because they're crazy. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. So, but uh, what I part of what I'm getting to though is what I find shattering is again just how much of a role the Russians play in this. They have a council of ministers that are working very hard to 
sideline Nicholas. Again, we think of these autocrats as having all this power. Really, the, the power in Russia and even in Germany is in a handful of people. Military class in both cases. Um, certainly in Germany. Certainly in Germany, but a little less in Russia. Um, but eventually they do start to push the kind of the, I guess, the peace party type guys out mm-hmm. and bring in more people who are comfortable with a military solution to the problem, which again is the same thing as always. They want the straits. Um, so again, what I, I'm finding this shattering to find out, geez, the Russians were dicks in 1914. Then they spent 70 years as commie dicks. Now they're not commies anymore, and they're still massive dicks. So basically your premise of this entire thing is Russians are dicks. The Russians are dicks, and they have been for a long time. And it's like this bizarre continuity of, you know what? I think we could start a war down here in the Balkans. Because um, this impression that, that, that Nicholas was reluctant to go to war. Nicholas may have been... But they were going to talk him into it anyway. So oh. you're suggesting then the only person, the entity, who really wanted a war was Russia. They thought that was the, the power path, ground. the path to their goal, path to glory, path to power. Well, hold on, I, I, I don't. I, I no, think it, it's the path to I, their strategic goal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't dispute the, the glory. It's. I don't think you can lay this. I know I'm, I'm attempting to Russia, I'm, primarily because what they were looking for was not a continental war, okay? Because they, they they could care less about you know, Western Europe. Western, well, Western, but they saw that as the the strategic method by which there the, would be a dismemberment of the yeah Ottoman yeah yeah. Empire. But you know what's going on in France. Screw that. No. Well, Bunch of frogs. Well, that's correct. Okay. As long and as the money kept coming. As long as the money kept coming. They were a tool, a means to the end, but they were not looking to touch off this oh, massive continental war. I, I submit war. to you, and I think we all agree with this, nobody had any clue that it was going to go where it went. Well, no, because again, this is the first modern That is correct. War. That, that was, nobody had any idea. They presumed over quick... Uh, turkey's cut up, I get my big piece of it, and we're all happy again, because that's what had been kind of going on. Uh, you know, the Franco-Prussian War is a good example. It's very brief, very quick. The Germans did not see it as something quick. They thought if it started, it would be... Well, they... It would be a knockdown drag out. They were probably wiser than some. And that was what they wanted was... Well, that's hence the Schlieffen plan. They knew they had to have that. They had to knock France out. Yeah, France knew that they would be... Again, that was France's strategic piece is they knew they could not hold off Germans by themselves. So therefore, whatever the Russian calculations are, we've got to change that to make it where the Russians see the Germans as the primary enemy. Right. Even though the Germans, or the, uh, the Russians... The Russians. Really, their their antagonism is with, is with the Austrians because they're vying for power over the Balkans. Right. And the Balkans but, are and next door to what the Russians really want. Right. But they're the Russians, looking to get, yeah, like I said, it's the warm water port. They're yeah. looking but to get Austria into the Mediterranean and or were fairly joined at the hip. Yes, and, and that's, was, what, and that's, that's, the, that's what France is telling so, the So Russians. basically, they're both asking the same thing. They're just each are attacking different ends. 
or the mm. French become comfortable with the idea of Germany. there's going to be a war. We might as well start in the Balkans like the Russians want. Let's continue this in the next episode. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us. And please, remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel. (laughs) 